and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are privileged to gather together as your people and hear from you. And we get to open your word, which gives life and life abundance. And we get to hear from you, oh, oh God. And we, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your help uh, with all humility, knowing that we are finite and we need your help in understanding what it is you're saying about yourself. And Lord, um, for, for those of us in here that love Jesus and know Jesus, uh, we are Christians. And so we want to know more about this Jesus. And we want to look to your word and we want to see Jesus magnified. And so, Lord, I pray that as we uh, hear from your word, as we examine your word, that we would see Jesus so clearly. We would understand what he is, uh, what he has come to do, what he has accomplished, and what he is providing for us here today. And I pray that we would not leave here with mere information. We would leave here, Lord, with hearts uh, that are more fervently in love with you, hearts that uh, desire to, uh, to praise you, and that we would leave here, Lord, with the desire not just to leave your word behind on Sunday, but to leave here uh, ready to proclaim your word to those around us, Lord, because it's just, it's, it's just impossible not to when we, when we understand what it is you have done for us. It is impossible for us not to share what you have done with others. So I pray, God, that we would leave here uh, as glad heralds of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help me. I am a mere uh, vessel. Uh, I'm a weak uh, man, and I have many weaknesses, but I pray, Lord, um, that your power would be made perfect in weakness and that you um, would shine in and through my weakness so that you look great, Lord. I don't want to look great. I want you to look great. And so I pray for these things, Lord. We pray for these things as your church. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the main point of today's sermon uh, is this. If Jesus has called you, then he is sending you into the world on mission with his authority to proclaim the gospel. If Jesus has called you, he is sending you into the world on mission with his authority to proclaim the gospel. So if Jesus has indeed called you, then that, that implies that he has saved you. And if he has saved you, then that means that you have been placed into a relationship with him. That means that you've placed your trust in him and you've been placed into a living relationship uh, with God. And you've placed your trust in him by trusting all that he's done for you in his life, his death, 
his burial and his resurrection. And so if you have done this, then by faith, you have a personal relationship with God. And so from this text, I want us to take away from this time three truths, three truths from that main point. The first is this. As he sends you, God desires you to look at his authority as you are sent into the world on mission. God desires you to look at his authority as you are sent into the world on mission. And secondly, as he sends you, he is asking for your total dependence on him in the face of guaranteed hardship and opposition. He's asking for total dependence on him in the face of guaranteed hardship and opposition. And then thirdly, as Jesus sends you, he will advance his kingdom through you as you go out and proclaim the gospel. He will advance his kingdom through you as you go out and proclaim the gospel. And so let us begin uh, with that first point, that as he sends you on the world or into the world on mission, look at his authority. Look at his authority. So I want us to begin uh, firstly with the nature of his authority. If we're to look at his authority, we need to know what is the substance of this authority. What are we looking at? Um, you, you may not remember the passage prior to this. It's the passage that I preached uh, it was like over a month ago. Uh, but the, the passage prior to this, uh, you'll remember Jesus is coming back to his hometown. It's his homecoming. And he'd already been doing all these amazing wonders. He was preaching uh, incredible things about himself, but he was also doing these uh, miracles uh, throughout this rural Galilean uh, countryside. And so Jesus comes to his hometown, and you would expect his kinsmen, his, his, uh, his hometownsmen, even his family to accept him, to embrace him. And uh, if, if you remember, the result of his preaching and of his miraculous wonders to his townsmen, the result was rejection and opposition, even his own family. They were like, who is this guy? What is he saying? Who is he to do these things? This is Jesus. We grew up with him. He's, he's a carpenter. Who is he to do this? And so people are generally at this point in, the, at this point in Mark, where we're, where we're reading today, people are wondering, uh, where, where is he getting this authority? Where is this coming from? Who is he to be able to say these things about himself? He's literally fulfilling prophecies about himself that were made 300 years prior, and he's saying, that's about me. I'm the Messiah. He's saying all these things about himself, applying from the Jewish Torah, and he's applying them to himself. And he's teaching as if he's a rabbi. He's going into the synagogues, and he's just teaching this carpenter, and he's teaching as if he has a place of authority, and he has all this knowledge and wisdom. And right off the bat, um, just, just kind of, to, to highlight this, this amazement as authority, uh, if we were to go back to the first chapter of Mark, just to remind you, verse 22, it says right away that people were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes, as just a normal teacher of the law. And then we see, uh, because he's talking with his authority, his authority begins to be challenged more and more and more as his ministry unfolds. And then even at the end of his ministry, if we were to go to the end of Mark, uh, near to the time of his death, it says that Jesus entered the big city of Jerusalem with this word, with this authority, and the whole city was stirred up because of their fascination with, with his authority. 
in verse 23 of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verse 23, Matthew, Matthew 21, 23, it says he entered the temple of Jerusalem. This is the big city now. He's moved out of the town. He's in the big city. Everyone's stirred up because of the things he's saying. Sorry, the mic gave out here. Battery, maybe. Jesus, he comes into the big city. Everyone's stirred up, and they're fascinated. And it says he entered into the temple. This is like the religious center of the Jewish religion. And he walks right into the temple, uh, and he begins to teach. And he st- it's, it says he was next to the chief priest and the top uh, religious people of Jerusalem. And they're, they're taken back by what he's doing and what he's saying. And this is literally what they say. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And so we see all across the the book of of Mark that Jesus is revealing to the world what type of authority he wields. And so I want us to look at this passage today, and I want us to think about his authority, and I want us to see uh, what his authority reveals in this passage specifically. And uh, I think that we'll see right off the bat that his authority is ultimate. His authority is ultimate. It's an authority that is literally waging an all-out assault on the ruler of this world. Notice in verse 7, and specifically in verse 13, uh, it is with this very authority that demons are casted out. People are healed of all sorts of affliction and sickness. And so Jesus is showing to the masses that there's only one kind of power in this world that can defy the natural. One kind of power power that can turn wayward hearts toward himself, turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's showing us that it can only be the power and authority that is sourced from God himself. This kind of authority only comes from the living God. An authority that commands death and life. And it can only come from God. And so his authority is ultimate. We can also see in this passage uh, that his authority, his authority is ultimate because it gives life. It's an authority that gives life. And so since this authority can only come from God himself, then it must be an authority that gives life. It must be the same authority that God used to create We think back to Genesis 1, the creation narrative. He spoke creation into existence. If we were to go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, the first four verses, I'll read this. It says this about the authority of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we can see uh, from this passage that uh, his authority is one that has always been. It's eternal. And it's one that creates. And we can see that from this passage. It's one that's uh, literally giving life. And it's one that brings eternal life. It is one that saves. Uh, and, and so we can see that his authority is ultimate, and we can see uh, that his authority, it gives life. And then we can also see uh, that some of his authority is shared with his followers. Some of his authority is shared with his followers. Another way to put it is that his authority is extended through his followers as representatives of the kingdom. And we can see that here in this passage. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus sends his apostles out in pairs on mission, and it says that he gave them authority. He gave them authority. And I just want us to stop and ponder this reality for a second. Jesus, God in the flesh, he extends his authority to mere men and women. The God in the flesh, he gives his authority to us. In this passage, we, you know, some might say, well, these are his closest 12, they're the apostles, they're his closest confidants. But let me remind you that these were just mere men. These were blue-collar, uh, really just nobodies in society. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. Uh, one of them was a zealot, which he was basically like a militaristic rebel. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wanted to rebel against the government. And so these were, these were like normal people, hardened people. Actually, uh, they were people that maybe some of us can even relate to, much like you and I. And Jesus is sharing his authority with them in this passage. And so, amazingly, this shows us that he invites his followers to participate with him in the establishment of his kingdom. And he calls them, and he sends them out, but he doesn't send them out empty-handed. He gives them the authority of God in word and deed to wield against the, the ruler of this world, who we know has destructive plans to kill, steal, and destroy so he shares his authority with these guys to, uh, to, to really wage war against the power of darkness. And notice that he also doesn't send them out alone. He sends them out as a team. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it seems that there is a normative pattern in the New Testament that followers of Jesus, when they go out with his authority, uh, he sends them out in a plurality. He never sends them out alone. And so he sends these men in pairs. So he's sending his apostles into the world uh, with his authority in word and deed over the ruler of this world. And this miraculous work in power and deed is extended through his followers. So I don't want us to leave this reality here in this passage. I want us to fast forward to where we are today. And I want to remind you that the authority given to the apostles in this very passage it finds its way to us 2,000 years later, those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, if you were to go to the end of Mark, maybe if you were to go to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, um, this same authority is the authority that he gives to Peter in, uh, in Matthew 16 where he says, on this rock I will build my church. Well, that rock is Peter's confession of faith. And he says, Peter, I will give you of my authority and the keys of the kingdom. 
And then you go to Matthew 18, and he gives that same authority that he gives Peter to the local church, to people like us, the keys of the kingdom. And then we go all the way to the end of the Great Commission, and Jesus says, all of the authority that has been given to me, I give to you to go, therefore, into the world, commanding um, all the nations to repent, uh, to be baptized, to repent, and to follow Jesus. So this authority that uh, has been extended by Jesus through the apostles in this passage, it goes all the way across the span of church history through faithful followers, and then it finds itself to where we are here today. I just think that's amazing. We have the very authority that Jesus is extending through his apostles. We have that same authority uh, where we are today 2,000 years later. And so, friends, um, we must look at his authority as we go. Every single one of us that has placed our faith and trust in Jesus, every single one of us is sent. We are all sent ones. We are all sent into the world, whether here, whether somewhere else. We are all representing his authority. And his authority is ultimate because it's God's. It's an authority that gives life. And it's an authority that is graciously given to those uh, who have placed their trust in him. And so how do we do this practically? Just some practical application. How do we actually look at his authority? Uh, I, I, I tend to hear these things a lot, these sort of truisms, do this, do that. But I want to know, uh, you know, Jesus isn't in front of me right now. And so how do we actually look at his authority? He's not walking with us in the flesh today. And I think we begin by looking at what he has left behind for us that holds his authority. We look at his word. We look at his word, we depend on it, we search it diligently. When we look at his word, we're looking at his authority. 2 Timothy uh, 3, verses 16 through 17, Paul actually tells his disciple Timothy, says this about the word of God. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we look at his word to look at his authority. So he's sending us into the world on mission, and we look at his authority. But as he is sending us, he's also asking us for complete and total dependence on him in the face of guaranteed hardship and opposition. Complete dependence in the face of hardship and opposition. If we were to go back a few chapters to chapter 3, we don't have to do this, but if we were to go back in the book of Mark, we would remember the passage where Jesus, he goes up on a mountain, and he calls his appointed 12 to come join him there. And on the mountain, he sets them apart so that they would be with him. And as the text says, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then we fast forward to three, uh, three chapters to where we are today. And this is the actual commissioning, if you will. The commissioning of that promise that he gave them in chapter 3. To do the very thing that Jesus said. He would extend his authority through his apostles in word and power. And so he sends them out. He sends them out. And he sends them out very minimalistically uh, on this sort of short-term trip. That's a crucial contextual point here, okay? This is a short-term mission trip. He sends them out, and then in verse 30, they return, and they report on everything that they've done. 
and they are his appointed representatives with a very specific task. And so he then gives them instructions. Let's look at verse 8 and 9 here in the text. It says, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. So, it's, to be honest, it's quite challenging to preach uh, from this passage because if I'm honest, I've heard a lot of teachings from this specific passage that I believe have gone way too far. Um, entire like missions methodologies are extracted from this passage. Um, and people take what I believe the gospel writer Mark wanted to be largely descriptive, and they try to make it as though it's a command that's bound to Christians today, so it's prescriptive. And so, for example, they'll say, well, you know, the disciples in this passage, they go out in two-by-twos. And so when we go out and evangelize, we need to go out two-by-two. Or they'll say, um, you know, look, they're casting out demons. So if we're proclaiming the gospel, we should also be, you know, performing exorcisms or, uh, you know, doing miracles. And so they'll look at a passage that's descriptive and has a very specific historical context. And they'll just quickly apply it to where we are today. But in this passage, if we look at it carefully, we'll know Jesus actually has a very specific task that he's giving them to fulfill a very specific commission. Even though that's true, I believe there are still nuggets of wisdom and truth that are relevant for us today. And so I want us to start with the reality that Jesus instructs them to pack light. So look at the passage. He tells them not to bring really anything with them, just a walking stick. He instructs them to pack light. And I think this is wisdom that we can apply to our lives today. Uh, one commentator of this passage, uh, William Lane, he puts it this way. The specific terms of the commission demanded of the disciples a rigorous commitment to total dependence upon God for food and shelter. So they were able to take a staff, but really nothing else. Complete dependence on, on the Lord is what he's asking them to do. And I think one thing is certain for us here today, that as God sends us, if we're all sent, then we too must pack light. Now, what I mean by pack light uh, is not so much an emphasis on what you bring with you materialistically. That's, I, don't, I don't believe that that's exactly what we need to take from this. Uh, but I think what he is saying here, and what he's implying here, even to his apostles, is that we must go in radical faith. When we're going out on mission, we go with radical faith ready to cast aside anything that would add weight to our mission. So we're supposed to depend completely on him in the face of the unknown with a pure focus on the task that he has given us, eliminating any distraction or any deterrence from faithfulness to the mission. Hebrews 12.1 tells us this, Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us so christians as we as we desire to be effective in order to be effective for god we must hold loosely to anything that may hinder or obstruct the mission of god and so question for us today is what are we holding on to what is it that is standing in the way of 
our desire to share the gospel? What is it that's standing in our way as we look every single day to be faithful to the mission of God that he's given us? What are things that we're holding tightly to? And another question for us is, as we identify these things, are we holding tightly to our faith in God to provide exactly what we need as we are sent as his representatives? Jesus is enough. He is enough. Every single day we leave our, our, our home, we go to work, we go into the world. We must remind ourselves that Jesus is enough. We can pack light. We need to pack light. He's enough. James Edwards, um, he's a commentator on Mark. I was reading his commentary this week. He says this, true service of Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. They must trust in him alone who sends them. So when we pack light, great faith is required in God to provide our needs. Philippians 4.19, Paul's imprisoned here and he says this, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. And so do we believe this? Do we believe that God will provide every need? Do we believe this as we go out from here? Well, Jesus is asking for total dependence, total dependence on our God. And he's asking the same of us. But he's also asking us this in the face of guaranteed hardship and opposition. Guaranteed hardship and opposition will come to those who follow Jesus. And so let's read on. Uh, his, constructions, uh, his instructions continue. Let's read uh, verse 10 and verse 11. It says, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that's uh, take the, off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So, pretty simple instructions for this short-term mission trip. When you arrive to a stranger's home, you're going to go out with my power and authority. You're going to do some amazing things. When you arrive to a stranger's home and they receive you, that's awesome. Stay there uh, and finish your work. And uh, if received, I think it's implied that they received these amazing things that they're doing and they received the message of the gospel. And what a blessing on those hosts. And then he says, when you leave, sort of ominously, and go to another house, you're going to get rejected. There are going to be people that won't receive you. And if they don't receive the clear power and authority that comes with your message and your deed then as a sign to them of their own personal decision to reject the authority of God, they don't receive that, then it's on them. It's on them. So he's holding them accountable for the rejection of the message and rejection of the things they've seen. And then he says, shake the dust off your feet. Now, that's, that was a cultural practice uh, in the Jewish religion. Um, it, was, it was a way of showing people that reject the message of God, uh, warning them what awaits them. If you reject them, then judgment will fall on you, basically was what it meant. And so uh, it was a common practice for devoted Jews, priests, whoever it was. They would go to these, you know, if they had work to do, they would go to a pagan town, a town that worships all these other gods and idols. Um, and it was a common practice for them as they left and finished their business 
um, to shake the dust off their feet. Um, and basically was saying there will be divine judgment that falls on you. Um, and so Jesus is actually saying the same thing here. He's saying if they don't receive me and my message and my authority through you, that's because of that's their willful choice to reject. And so as a sign of their, their rejection, not us, we gave the message. And the message was loving and it was filled with power. Indeed, they rejected it. Shake the dust off your feet. I think, unfortunately, the world that we live in today, things have not really changed much as Christians. Christian persecution and rejection of the gospel message is at an all-time high. Actually, more than it ever has been before in the history of the world. And so we look to places like China, and um, there are reports of people that are being imprisoned, beaten, killed for the faith, their faith in the gospel. You go across the Middle East, there are, the church is growing in rapid fashion, but it's growing underground. And so people are literally risking their lives um, each and every day to be message bearers of the gospel. And if we're honest, if we look at the country that we're in today, this message of the gospel is not welcome in many circles. And I think there's much to be thankful for. We do have freedom to gather here and practice and worship. We're here today on a Sunday, and no one's bothering us. No one's saying we can't do that. Praise God. But as soon as we share the message of the gospel, uh, things get pretty dicey for us uh, in this country, specifically to certain people. And so the, the message of the gospel is not welcome uh, in, in some, some uh, large population segments here uh, in Malaysia. But I want to remind us, Christians, that if we are sent, if we are sent ones, and we must not withhold the gospel from anyone, then I believe that with humble and grieving hearts, there will come times where we need to also warn people. We love them, we give them the gospel, but we also warn them um, of the dangers that hold for them by rejecting the gospel of Jesus. When we go out with the message of the gospel, if this is the truth, which I believe it is, the only truth, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father but by me. If we hold the truth, and we go out into a world that doesn't want the truth, opposition is sure to come, guaranteed. Ridicule is sure to come, and for many, uh, it will come at the cost of persecution. And so, Jesus in this passage is saying opposition will come with the message of the gospel. He's telling us here today opposition will come. And so we remind ourselves that we must trust completely in our God to uh, provide everything we need in the face of guaranteed opposition and hardship. Uh, which, which brings us now to our third and, and final point. That he will establish his kingdom through us as we proclaim the gospel. He will establish his kingdom through us as we proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 12 uh, and 13. Uh, it tells us that after the disciples, or after the apostles received instruction, it says they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick uh, and healed them. And so after being commissioned and receiving these detailed instructions, the apostles, they respond in obedience uh, and they went out. They went out in faith. And they proclaimed the gospel with Jesus' authority. They knew they had his authority. What do they have to fear? And they went out preaching in word and deed. And I want you guys to notice the content of their proclamation. Look in the text here. 
um, in verse 12, it says they were preaching to repent. To repent. Now, this is the very same message if we went back to Mark 1. John the Baptist was preaching. He was out in the wilderness and he was preaching, repent, turn from your sins. Uh, And then this is the same message Jesus is preaching all along the way. Repent, repent, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from living your own way. Embrace Christ, his life-giving grace. Jesus was making a pronouncement that he's the king of kings. His kingdom is here. Come be a part of his kingdom, a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that is filled with peace, a kingdom that yields eternal life. When I think about Jesus' kingdom, God's kingdom, I, that is such an encouragement to, to me today. We, we, I don't know if you guys have been watching the news, but the world is just in so much turmoil. All the kingdoms of this world are at war with one another, and really none of them are offering true and lasting peace. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom is eternal, and it will, it will bring peace. And so Jesus is saying, I'm here, repent. And the apostles are saying, repent, turn from your sins. And then you also see that he has this word ministry, repent. But we also see that his gospel proclamation was accompanied by miracles, healings, casting out demons, etc. And I want to note, I want to make a special note on this, this uh, reality that this was actually an explicit demonstration of his authority extended to them. Uh, You'll remember Jesus had already been in the countryside. He had already been doing miracles and amazing wonders, healing the sick, even raising the dead. But remember, ultimately, how was Jesus uh, saving people? He wasn't saving people by merely his healings or his uh, raising people from the dead, his miracles. Repeatedly, he was going to folks and he was saying, As he encountered them miraculously, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Not the miracles. Yeah, you're healed, but it is your faith that has made you well. And so the apostles are now carrying on this work. They're doing miracles, but the emphasis is not on the miracles. The emphasis is on the proclamation. Repent. Believe by faith. Your faith will make you well. And I want us to just do a little bit of contextual uh, work here because this has a specific commission and a specific historical context. Jesus is displaying his miraculous power through the apostles, and he wants to show the world during this time that his kingdom is otherworldly. His kingdom comes with power. And so healing the sick, casting out the demons, this was just a demonstration that Jesus is here and his kingdom is not of this world. And it's sort of like an inauguration party. I don't, I don't know how long you, uh, most of you have lived in JB, but you, you don't have to live here long to realize that like every week a new mall opens. It's like the land of malls. And like there's always these giant grand openings, these big like um, inauguration ceremonies. Everybody comes and they have this big party and they give discounts, free things. They're really fun. I actually like going to them. And they're, they're saying, look, we're here now. This is big. We want you to come to us. We don't want you to go to the other mall that's like a block away. We want you to come to our mall. Uh, And it's sort of this opening ceremony. Well, Jesus coming to the world 
and doing these amazing miracles, it's sort of like that. It's an inauguration ceremony. It's a grand opening, if you will, to the kingdom of God. Jesus is here, and he begins to establish his kingdom. And so he's coming out with a bang. And the reason I want to highlight this, this specific historical reality, is that today, you look around the world, and in the name of Jesus, you'll see a lot of people trying to do like the works of the apostles. Turn the TV on, you'll see faith healers. You'll see people uh, just literally doing like um, deliverance uh, services, people trying to cast demons out. You'll even see uh, faith healers here in Malaysia. I've seen them all over the place. But what is often absent in their supposed miraculous works and wonders that they're doing in the name of Jesus, what's often absent is the gospel message. What, if you really listen closely to some of their messages, they're not really saying much about Jesus. They're not really saying much about his message. What do you have to do to be saved? They're emphasizing signs and wonders, signs and wonders. And people are leaving with no clue who Jesus is. And I, I don't say that to denigrate the power of God, because I believe God can and does do miracles. Um, I have uh, seen him do miraculous things, and I've encountered people that have come to Christ uh, in just miraculous ways. But in this particular passage, Jesus has a specific task, so we can't look at this passage and say, oh, that's our ministry. We proclaim, and we also must go out and do all these miracles. Jesus is really showing here in this passage that the dawning of a new kingdom has started. And so when we actually do some real careful contextual work and we read passages like this, um, we'll be able to discern that much of what we hear from faith healers on TV, a lot of times it's just a blatant twisting of the scriptures, it's a blatant, blatant misreading of the scriptures, and oftentimes uh, a blatant um, misapplication of the scriptures. You'll see people do this all the time when they read the book of Acts. We should be doing what everybody's doing in Acts. So I want to reiterate that God is a God that can do miracles. And he, it does please him to display his glory in that. Uh, but in today's world, I would not say that it's normative um, or that we should expect to see the gospel always accompanied with miracles. What we have for certain, though, is the clear gospel message. What we have is this final authoritative word. He's given us all that we need, everything that we need for our salvation and for good works and for um, our holiness is found in the authority of his word. And so after this short-term trip with a specific mission, the apostles, they return um, I don't know who's going to preach uh, the next few passages, but you'll see they come back, they report what they've done, they report what they've said. And then this specific short-term mission anticipates what comes at the end in Mark, at the end of Mark and uh, Matthew 28, when, if you'll remember, the disciples encounter the risen Jesus. He rises from the dead, he comes back to them, and he tells them to go into all the nations with the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. So friends, as we are sent, which indeed all of us are sent, I want to encourage you, I encourage, I want, I want to do this myself. Let's plead with others to embrace Christ. Let's watch him establish his kingdom through us. After all, it's his power, it's not ours. 
Let us not shrink back in fear from telling the world to repent and turn from their sins, warning them of what awaits if they don't accept Jesus. Yes, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because it confronts all of us, all of us, every single one of us in our sins. It speaks of our separation from a holy, righteous, good, but also a just God who hates sin and must take care of sin. But on the other side of that offense, on the other side of that offense, he offers the greatest hope ever told, the greatest grace that one could ever behold, that upon repentance and faith in Jesus, God in the flesh came down to rescue us. He did all the work for us. We don't have to work our way up to heaven. There's no amount of good deeds that could ever clear us of our sin. And we no longer have to feel the weight and the fatigue of trying to work our way up to heaven, trying to justify ourselves because it is Jesus who lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he perfectly obeyed the standard of God that we could never hope to obey. And we'll read later about this in the book of Mark, but Jesus willingly went to, he ends up going willingly to a bloody cross, a place of punishment, a place of torment and sin, a place of public shame to bear the wrath of God. He did that on our behalf. He took our place of punishment for the sin, for our sin, the punishment that we deserve. He paid the price with his own life in order to erase our sin for all of eternity. And then he showed us by resurrecting from the dead that he, only he, the king, can give everlasting life. And if we repent and believe by faith in this Jesus and everything that he's accomplished, we have the unmerited grace of God. We are given relationship with God himself in Jesus, access to him for eternal life. And so... Friends, for those of you who follow Jesus, look at his authority, depend on him to provide, and even as you face opposition, which undoubtedly will come, watch the living God establish his kingdom through you. Um, Samuel Hopkins, he's, a, he's an American theologian of the 18th century. I was reading this guy, um, amazing. He says this about God's plan to establish his kingdom. He says this, Christianity shall spread over the whole world, forming men and women to a high degree of universal benevolence and disinterested affection, uniting all mankind under one family, teaching them to love each other as brethren, each seeking and rejoicing in the public good and in the happiness of individuals. Friends, there is nothing like journeying in this world on mission uh, as messengers of the gospel. There's nothing like it because we have the peace of assurance knowing that God will finish the work that he started in us and he will accomplish much through us. And I want to say to you, it is worth it. It is worth leaving today uh, with the gospel message in faith and it is worth going out in the peace of Christ. And as the apostles in this passage today, as you carry the authority as they did, Go in faith, go in confidence with the authority of the gospel, knowing that he is with you as you go, and this world desperately needs the Savior of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.